Today on Pilot's Discretion, we're joined by flight instructor and CNN correspondent Pete Muntean. He tells us about growing up in an aviation family, teaching aerobatics, and flying in Africa. Pilot's Discretion starts right now. Welcome, Pilots. I'm your host, John Zimmerman of Sporties, and thanks for listening to Pilot's Discretion. If you like the podcast, please follow us in your favorite app and leave us a review. And remember, you can catch up on every previous episode by visiting sporties.com slash podcast. Today, my guest is Pete Muntean, a name that will be familiar for listeners who follow aviation stories in the national media. He is currently a correspondent for CNN who spends a lot of time covering transportation stories, including a recent primetime special on runway incursions. But Pete is not just a TV guy. He's also a third generation pilot, a flight instructor, and an aerobatic performer. So we have a lot to talk about. Pete, welcome to Pilot's Discretion. Thanks for having me, John. I'm thrilled to be here. Let's start at the beginning because your aviation story is fascinating and really inspiring in many ways. Your father was a pilot. Your mother was a very accomplished air show performer. So you grew up around aer- airplanes. Did you know as a kid that you had a uniquely aviation-focused family, or did you just assume everyone was like that? What was that experience like as a kid? <laughs> you know, um, flying was really a way of life for my family, and I was in uh, the middle left seat of a Piper Lance that my parents had. It was the family airplane when I was two weeks old, um, and so I just didn't really know any better. I, I think my parents would say, um, you know, we could have had somebody who was into something completely different. We're just, they said they were very lucky that they had a kid who also just really loved flying. And so I felt like, um, you know, now looking back, I feel very, very fortunate to have grown up in that world. Um, my dad had an aviation business. He um, held a couple STCs for Lopresti Speed Merchants. We had the first Piper Lance with um, the Howl Cowl on it. Um, and uh, we traveled to air shows, AOPA Expo, Sun and Fun. Oshkosh together. Um, my mom was also flying in aerobatic competition and in air shows. And so I don't know if I, I knew I had a unique upbringing until like I was maybe like a preteen and we would show up to school and kind of like rattier cars <laughs> <laughs> because all of the money was spent on airplanes. Um, but you know, I think a lot of kids would go to you know, like, oh, we went on this vacation. We took the airlines. I'm like, we flew there in our airplane. You guys don't have an airplane? Um, so, you know, I feel really, really fortunate to have um, that upbringing. And I definitely recognize my privilege in that way, too. A lot of people scrap for years to try and figure out how to become in aviation. And I was, I was sort of indoctrinated in it by birth. And so I, I just feel so grateful for that upbringing. Now, you went on to close the circle and become a pilot, but not before some tragedy. So um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I know difficult subject maybe, but your mother died in an air show crash when you were 18 yep. while you were there. Just an awful situation. But less than a year yeah. later, you earned your pilot certificate. Today, you're a flight instructor. You fly aerobatics a lot like your mom. So talk me through that process. Why did you decide to follow in her footsteps even after witnessing that tragedy? What, what did that mean to you? Yeah. I mean, you know, we sort of had this, this double whammy of tragedies. My dad died when I was 12. He had a glioblastoma, which has been in the news a lot. Um, John McCain and Bo Biden and Ted Kennedy uh, were all stricken by this horrible type of brain cancer. Um, and so that changed our, our 
lives as a trio, my mom, dad, and I pretty significantly. Um, my mom was flying air shows some at the time. And she also was an aerobatic flight instructor. Um, and she sat me down. I was 12 years old when my dad died. And she sat me down and said, do you want me to keep flying? And I was like, well, hell yeah, it's what you do. Like, how would we never not do this? Um, and so she really started to focus a lot on air shows and trying to get a corporate sponsor and getting booked for different types of air shows. Um, my mom flew an extra 300 L. Um, and I was also really, it's actually sort of the genesis of my, my broadcasting background. I started to announce for my mom at air shows when I was about 13. Um, and through that, um, I got to meet a bunch of really, uh, decorated and accomplished broadcasters like Rob Ryder, who, um, was an initial mentor of mine. He taught me how to announce essentially. And also we, we got a lot of media attention because my mom and I were a mother son team. Um, and so in that way, I kind of became exposed to TV news and we can sort of get back to that later. But, um, my mom was flying in an air show in, um, Culpeper, Virginia in 2006 in October. Um, I was 18 years old. I'd soloed only two months before, um, to the day. Um, and she pulled out of a maneuver too low and crashed. And it was a horrific accident. It, there was a fire. Um, my mom initially survived that. Um, but because of the fire, her, her lungs, um, and limbs were, were, she had third and even more severe burns over 90% of her body. Um, and she died that night. Um, and you know, I didn't really know which, what trajectory my life was going to go on at the time. I had graduated high school. I, I was at a community college at the time. Um, I kind of thought I was going to like run away and join the circus and like become an aerobatic pilot like my mom and, and we would continue the sort of mother son thing. Um, and so I, I matured a lot, I think because of that. And I was really sort of confronted with that tragedy and sort of tried to figure out which way was up. You know, I'm really grateful because, um, at the time I had a lot of, a, a lot of mentors who helped and, and Patty Wagstaff, um, really swooped in and she called me the day of the accident and she said, I'm going to be your godmother now. And I'm going to try and help you out in, in aviation and flying. She, she introduced me to people um, within the broadcasting and communications world um, that sort of helped launch that part of my career um, and really sort of kept me flying. And so um, it took me a while to kind of like find my footing again in aviation. And I was, I, I, I don't think I realized it at the time, but I was pretty traumatized by the accident and I was... I was hitting a lot of stumbling blocks in my training. I'd soloed, but I didn't really leave the pattern very much. Like I was just kind of a timid pilot. And my actual instructor at the time, a guy named John Galderi, called me one day and he's like, you got to get this done. And I took my check ride in May of 2007 and, and just kind of never really looked back. Um, and I love flying more than anything. You know, I think that um, at the time I just kind of like needed an outlet. And I, and I think through the, the practice and the consistency of flying a lot, um, it really made me sort of confident in my abilities again, not only as a pilot, but also as a person. My mom's crash, she was like the number one person in my life. I was like her biggest fan. And it was like, we were business partners, I would say as a teenager. And 
Um, it was like the rug was pulled out from under me and, and I found myself again, I think in, in aviation and flying, but it took a little bit. Um, and I'm grateful that you asked because, you know, it's not something I, I talk about it openly, but a lot of people don't ask me about it very often. And so, you know, I'm just so, I feel so lucky in a way, even though such a terrible thing happened, um, to just have that background, to have that upbringing, to have that in my blood, um, is just really, I could not have asked for a better introduction to aviation. Um, and now I get to sort of find it on my own. So it is kind of poetic in a way, I hope. Yeah, it's an amazing story. It really is. Uh, it's inspiring. I, I think it also, while maybe more dramatic than some pilots, I think it resonates probably with a lot of listeners that the process of becoming a pilot, I think, often forces you to learn more about yourself and- No doubt. Uh, find out- No doubt. It makes you a better person. Yeah. So, so tell me about that. What I mean, was there a certain- a moment or a lesson or something you learned about yourself through that process that, that really hit home? I think, um, you know, flying is a great metaphor for life. And I think that the thing that I always come back to in aviation is that I'll never know it all. And you also can sort of make the parallel to life. Like you're, it, it, I love the fact that aviation has made me a lifelong learner and be it learning something new about an airplane or learning something new about a flying technique or learning something new about a regulation, even as boring as that sounds like it is just a totally limitless, um, avenue for learning. And I, I just, gosh, I just love aviation so much. And I think it's, it's given me a really, a, a reason to live. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine life without it. And, you know, I just, every time I go, I was flying last night, every time I go flying, it's like, gosh, there's something, there's some new rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> I'm getting my multi-commercial right now. I'm flying this like big bulbousy Seneca around. And while that doesn't sound all that sexy or exciting, it, there's just something new to learn. It's like, oh, the Janitrol heater burns a gallon an hour. Like, <laughs> how fascinating is that? And, you know, I just, I just think it's such a hoot. And I have such a great kinship with so many people in my life. You know, it's fun now to be, I'm 34 now, turned 35 this year. And it's fun now to have, you know, I was often the youngest person and it's fun now to have, have peers. I have a great group of friends, um, who are, have all sorts of, comes from all sorts of walks, but some are airline pilots, some are government contractors, some one is an air racing champion. Um, and I have so many friends in aerobatics. Um, it's a really diverse world in aviation and we all, I just came back from Sun and Foam. We all get to riff with one another and talk about different things we've learned and different things we've seen. And like, how awesome is it to have that kinship? It's truly family. I love it more than anything. You mentioned aerobatics there, something you spend a lot of time doing now. Tell me about the difference between flying aerobatics and competing at it. I know some people have done yeah. a loop or a roll. Some people maybe even taken, <laughs> you know, some lessons, but there's really a difference between the occasional loop and roll and competing at it. What's the difference in, in mindset or preparation of, of those two parts of it? It is like the ultimate in mindset because in aerobatic competition, you are getting judged not only by um, how well you fly the maneuver, but in a lot of ways, the symmetry of a maneuver. So you might go to an air show and you might see somebody fly a loop and it looks like an egg. And that's on purpose because 
you want to be able to get the maximum amount of altitude at it and, and at the apex and then come and swoop back down to the ground at a low altitude. In competition flying, there's a lineup of judges. They are grading your loop on how circular it is. And so you start and end at the same point. You float over the top. Um, you can get downgraded for uh, a flat spot in a loop or drawing too much of a line. Um, it is very technical. And I'm not a judge, although I uh, commend the judges not only for my own benefit, <laughs> but also for their technical knowledge because it's hard. Um, it's a lot like watching figure skating from like 3,000 feet away. It is not necessarily for the pleasure of an audience, like at an air show performance. Um, it is for the judges. And it's really cool. You know, it's, it's, it's really fun to get deep in the weeds on this sport. Um, and so, you know, I would encourage anybody, um, if you're an EAA member, you can tack on an International Aerobatic Club membership, IAC, um, to learn more about the sport of aerobatics and competition. We need more people. Um, we, we would love for more people listening to come out and just check out a contest. There are plenty of them regionally. Um, there's a national championships, which um, gets very competitive. And it's a world level sport um, where people compete essentially on the Olympic level. Um, once you get into the advanced and unlimited categories, I fly in the sportsman and sometimes intermediate category um, in the decathlon, um, in the super D that I fly, in the super decathlon. And um, it's a pretty hard airplane to fly well. Um, it is, it's a, it's a fun challenge and, and you really have to sort of nail it. The airplane is pretty draggy. It's got a lot of struts. Um, it's derived from an Aranka champ after all. So <laughs> um, it's not the sleekest thing like an extra. Um, so you have to really manage the energy and it, you know, talk about another avenue of learning. I, I, I just learned so much and I'm consistently humbled by aerobatic competition. It's fun. It's a, it's a real hoot and it's a, and it's been an avenue for me to further my flying without, um, just going to lunch, you know, it's fun to fly to lunch and that's awesome. But, but it's, it's almost like I was practicing aerobatics just yesterday. It's like learning an instrument. You need to be consistent. You need to be committed to practice um, and you need to be focused. And so flying in an aerobatic box, which is a thousand meters by a thousand meters, it's a pretty confined area. Um, and you learn a lot about how you fly and how well you fly. Um, and it gives me a lot of purpose and direction. Love competition. You mentioned Patty Wagstaff and Eamon there. I know something she's done, something you've done <laughs> recently, flying over in Africa with the uh, Kenya Wildlife Service. Tell us about that project and, and what it's about and why it's so rewarding. I um, am really fortunate to be a CFI and a CFII, and um, it's something I've worked on um, for the last few years now. I'm not really instructing a ton at the moment, but um, Patty has been going for um, more than 20 years, probably closer to 25 years uh, every other year to um, Kenya to fly with the Kenya Wildlife Service Air Wing, which is um, a group of pilots from the Kenya Wildlife Service. They mostly start as rangers first, and they're essentially an anti-poaching um, air wing. And they do a lot of other things too, like medevac and supply delivery. And they do a lot of things, a lot of things now called um, human-animal conflict, where they try and deconflict um, animals that might encroach on a farmer's uh, field. Um, and they also try and, uh, uh, stem off 
uh, rogue herds of cattle, et cetera, in these national parks. Kenya is a, a, a huge country with a huge national, huge national park system and a, a huge commitment to conservation. And so uh, Patty has been going every couple of years to provide them recurrent training and they fly um, general aviation airplanes. They fly um, primarily Aviat Huskies, uh, the Piper Super Cub, Cessna 180, 182, 206. Um, and the pilots exist in kind of a vacuum. They are out in a park they do their job. They fly for several hours a day, and then they come back to the park um, without a, a lot of support from other pilots. And so this is a great opportunity for them to get together and get mentoring from one another, and then also some instruction from us. And so what we did was essentially work with them on um, just making sure their skills are up to snuff. These pilots are very experienced. They have um, a lot of hours in the airplanes that they fly. They are they are deeply committed to conservation in Kenya, which is really cool. Um, but they fly at very low altitude um, to be able to see animals and poachers if necessary, um, and that leaves them very little margin for error. And so it's a really important job um, to volunteer to be able to do. Um, me, Patty, and another instructor, Jeff Rochelle, who's a former Air Force Thunderbird pilot. Um, and great instructor, we all went over together um, to Kenya and uh, worked out of a park called Savo West, um, which is incredibly cool because um, it's kind of like flying into Jurassic Park. You, you sort of, you immediately see, I was I was flown from Nairobi um, to Savo by a pilot, Johnny Tiapar, who's a great pilot. And he goes, elephant. I said, where? And uh, he's like, I'll take you down and I'll show you. And I, I've never in real life, other than being at a zoo, maybe seen a herd of elephants at such close range. And <laughs> it was just like totally mind boggling and an incredible experience, not only as a person, but also as a pilot and also as an instructor. And the, the point is um, to make these pilots who have such an important job um, to be able to get them to come home at night. Um, and that it's really, it was really, really amazing. And I, I feel very, very lucky to have been invited. Yeah, sounds like the adventure of a lifetime. Flying in Africa, definitely no bucket list item for me. Yeah. And I think lots of pilots. Yeah. yeah, we used Mount Kilimanjaro as a uh, as a <laughs> as a reference for ground reference maneuvers. <laughs> it's pretty as a reference for turns. It was, it was pretty awesome. Like, where else do you get to use Mount Kilimanjaro as a reference? Like, that was awesome. That was it's just so surreal. Yeah, that might that might win the bar stool uh, conversation at, at, at Oshkosh. <laughs> pretty good. Thanks. Thanks. Pete, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about airline safety, which you've been reporting on a lot lately. Okay. Earn all your pilot ratings and keep your flying skills sharp with Sporty's Pilot Training Plus. This all-inclusive membership unlocks Sporty's complete library of award-winning video courses so you can learn anywhere you have your phone, tablet, or laptop. For one annual fee, you get access to over $1,500 in courses, a smart investment in your flying career. Plus, enjoy free shipping every day of the year at sporties.com and apply for one of our three annual flight training scholarships. Learn more at sporties.com slash pilot training. Now, back to pilot's discretion. We're back with Pete Muntean, who has spent a lot of time this year reporting on bad times for the airlines, at least in the form of <laughs> runway incursions and flight cancellations and other things like that. 
So Pete, I'm going to take a slightly contrarian position here, and maybe you can talk me out of it. I'm, I'm not sure I believe this or not, but there's an <laughs> argument here that I hear some people make. There have been no major airline crashes in the U.S. since 2009. The airline industry is on a staggeringly good safety streak, uh, unprecedented in the history of human transportation, you could say. On top of that, according to FAA data, runway incursions last year were actually down compared to 2018, 2019, pre-COVID. Uh, even December 22, uh, 2022, which was a disaster of a month with bad weather, Southwest Airlines system-wide meltdown, air, airline cancellations all over the news, and yet airline case cancellations were just 5% and under 2% for a lot of major carriers like American. So is there really a problem here or are we just paying attention more? And, and isn't social media just <laughs> you know amplifying this because we can all get the live ATC tapes 10 minutes after it happens? How much of this is overblown and how much of this is for real? It's a little bit both and. I mean, I think the severity of these runway incursions are unprecedented. And lest we forget, the last time there was an FAA safety summit, an emergency meeting of all stakeholders across aviation was after the Colgan air crash in 2009, which was the last major uh, U.S. commercial airline fatality. Um, so that sort of speaks to how serious regulators, how seriously regulators are taking this. And also, I mean, we sure the runway incursion numbers are down, but the number of these severe incursions that, mind you, are being investigated by the NTSB, that is up. And I've even asked this to NTSB uh, Chair Jennifer Hammondy. I said, what is the issue here? Is it perception or are these things actually going up? And, and she and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg both agree there is an uptick in these types of incidents. And so what is happening here and what we've heard from many different layers of regulators and also um, operators is that there is this kind of atrophying of skills that we have seen as a result of the pandemic, that, that there's huge demand for air travel right now, maybe even more so than what the airlines thought that they would see um, after the depths of the pandemic were so deep, um, and that a lot of pilots are there's a bit of a brain drain. A lot of the really senior um, pilots were incentivized to retire by airlines. There's a lot of very fast matriculation from into the regionals and from regionals to to mainline carriers. Um, and the the system is really compacted. And even the FAA admits there's a shortage of air traffic controllers. So it's sort of this intersection of a few different things. And the only reason why I don't dismiss it as, oh, we're just more aware of it. Maybe that is true. Um, but some of these incidents are, are really serious. Like talk about Austin, where a Southwest flight in very poor weather conditions was still on the runway as this FedEx flight was coming into land. And FedEx flight crew had the presence of mind and the wherewithal to realize that that Southwest flight was still on the runway and went around. They called their own go around. ATC did not. Um so they were within a hundred hundreds of feet from colliding. We, we could have seen something there that was on par with Tenerife. Um, so one cannot sort of brush aside um, these, these incidents. And I think if these happened in the last three years, we would have heard about them. There's, these are really 
pretty significant. And there have been, you know, significant runway incursion incidents before, but the fact that these are happening with such rapidity and such close, close proximity when it comes to time, we're talking about six under investigation by the NTSB since the start of this year. Um, so that I think is really significant. Lots of proposed solutions to this. Uh, it's probably a problem that has many solutions required. There's no magic bullet here. But it does seem like the the shortage of workers, which you alluded to, is part of it, and not just on the airline side. Uh, I mean, just recently, there's talk from New York Center that staffing shortages there this summer could cause delays. How stressed do you think overall the aviation system is across all of it? Pilots, mechanics, controllers, even FAA staff in Washington just seems like we have a, a shortage all the way around. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, I think that it is at multiple different levels and layers. It seems like aviation is up to the challenge, though. I mean, the good news here is that when you talk about these incursions, we're talking about incidents, we're talking about crashes that did not happen. When else in, in time have the mainstream media reported on incidents that aren't happening? Commercial aviation is that safe. So it really speaks to the safeguards. Uh, in commercial aviation and in the national airspace system in general. Um, but I think the fact that these close calls were so close is reason for alarm. And so, yeah, I mean, the airlines were caught a bit flat-footed and they may agree with that um, by the uptick from the depths of the pandemic. And the FAA now readily acknowledges that it has controllers or shortages after, in a way, the FAA refused to share the blame during um, huge, uh, kind of roving meltdowns of, uh, the airline system over last summer, there would be cancellations in the thousands. One bad weather system could really throw off the, the airline system for days. Um, you know, the Southwest meltdown that was the airline's own failing, but, um, you know, the airlines would put back on the FAA, well, you know, a lot of these delays and cancellations are caused by an air traffic control system that can't handle the volume. Um, and now the FAA is saying, well, you know, we need to hire more controllers too. They had 58,000 applications for controllers last June. Um, but as a result of the pandemic, their training academy is still backlogged. Um, so it's going to take some time for things to sort of get back to a 2019 level of normalcy. Um, and it's not quite there yet. You do a great job of bringing that aviation perspective to a wide audience. You did a segment recently for CNN about these runway incursions where you actually got in a diamond twin star and flew into Dulles Airport and showed for a non-pilot what that looks like, what a runway looks like, what a hold short line looks like, how ATC communicates. Talk to us about how you balance the need for that expertise on such a technical subject, but, but the need also to be clear and not overwhelming for non-pilots. How do you walk that line? <laughs> it's like being a flight instructor. I truly think of my job as being a flight instructor on a different plane, pardon the pun, um, where you're taking somebody from the unknown to the known. And, you know, think about what it's like to be, um, if you're listening and you're a student pilot or you're an accomplished pilot, you started from nothing at one point. So, I kind of try to use language where I'm taking somebody from zero and making them sort of educated in a topic I, without sacrificing um, the technical nuance of it. 
you know, sometimes things are a little bit tricky to sort of get across. We were covering like the 5G um, meltdown uh, as a <laughs> or meltdowns as a result or, or proposed. How do you phrase that? Uh, the fear that 5G signals would interfere with radar altimeters. It's pretty hard to explain to a layman what a radar altimeter is and why it's important. Um, but you can sort of distillate it down and say, well, these, you know, the, interfere with the systems that uh, airlines need to land in extremely poor weather conditions. That's true. That's not that's not wrong. Um, it might be an over distillation for some. Um, they wish there was more nuance in it, but it's what the quickest way of getting across so, and helping somebody from the unknown to the known. And so, you know, I, I really think of my job is incredibly cool. I get to talk about flying for a living. <laughs> How awesome is that? It's like flying is my favorite thing. My next favorite thing is talking about flying. So, um, you know, you try and just really be true to what you know. And also, I mean, there's a, I, there's a ton of journalism in this. It's not just me being some sort of savant. I, I don't know. Like I said earlier, I don't know everything. I'm always learning stuff. And so, you know, part of that is being able to pick up a phone and call somebody who is is really knowledgeable about a topic. I, like I've never used a radar altimeter before I was talking about 5G. I've, I've, I'm a general aviation pilot. That's not something you see often. And so, you know, in this most recent example, like we we rented a twin star from Aviation Adventures out in Leesburg, Virginia, um, and we went to Dulles, big airport, just to sort of like peel back the layers of the onion a little bit and show people what it's like um, at an airport. The point was not to scare people. The point was to make it so that they understood the different layers that are there um, to protect runway incursions fr from happening, to to prevent runway incursions from happening. And so we explain some pretty basic stuff. This is a whole short line. This this is what, uh, you know, if you're flying on a visual approach and there are three parallel runways, you might want to dial in an instrument approach just to make sure you're lined up on the right one. We landed on one center at Dallas. <laughs> There's one left, one center, and one right. You don't want to land on the wrong one and you don't want to line up with the wrong taxiway. Um, and, you know, we sort of showed folks like what apps like ForeFlight and Garmin Pilot can do. Um and that's just sort of a general aviation example, but we tried to do it in an airplane that was the most advanced that we could find, and that was this. And so, you know, I think um, we just really try, I really try um, to break down complex topics and make them pretty simple. Um, but sometimes you have to show people the complexity of things, and that was sort of the hope in that special on runway incursions. Pete, we always close pilot's discretion with a lightning round we call ready to copy. So I'll throw out some questions <laughs> on a wide variety of topics and you give me your quick answer. Are you ready to copy? Okay. Ready to copy. <laughs> your mother's flight school was based at Baybridge Airport, I believe. Uh, beautiful airport on Maryland's eastern shore. You know, 2,700 foot runway right in the water just outside the Washington DCA is. I've flown there. It's, it's really a beautiful hidden gem, I think. It is really it is. worth a visit for a typical GA pilot or is it too intimidating with the airspace and the short runway and the congestion? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think Bay Bridge is awesome. I don't fly out of there right now, but I love visiting it. And um, yeah, you should totally go. Um, you know, the cool thing about Bay Bridge is that it is right on the Chesapeake. There's a suspension bridge right next to it. There's no more beautiful view, I think, at an airport on the eastern seaboard than Bay Bridge. Um, 
you could at one point uh, walk to the restaurant. It used to be Hemingway's. Now it's changed hands, but you have to take a bit of a circuitous route. You know, Uber has really sort of upped the utility of general aviation airplanes. And so <laughs> it's a really, really cool spot. And Ken Island is really cool. The Eastern Shore of Maryland is really cool. And it's a great way to beat the uh, Bay Bridge traffic of all the DC dwellers like me going eastbound. You spent a lot of time flying the Super Decathlon, as you mentioned. It's a very popular airplane for aerobatics training and even performance and competition. What makes that such a good airplane for learning aerobatics? The Super D is awesome because it has real airplane qualities. It is not something that is in this. It doesn't have the snappiest roll rate. It doesn't have um, a super powerful engine. Um, It's only 180 horsepower. Uh, you know, you really need to manage the energy and you need to really, it requires a lot of finesse and some muscle. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's great to fly hotter stuff. I would love an extra. I'll probably get one one day. (laughs) Um, I'm looking for partners if anyone out there is listening. Um, but, uh, you know, I just, I love the challenge of it and it's, it's really an airplane that makes you also really use your feet too. I think you, one can take for granted when you watch an airshow pilot do a roll, um, there's a lot of footwork that goes into to it too, top rudder to, to keep the nose from slicing through the horizon when the wings aren't no longer working in your knife edge. So, um, you know, it teaches you the proper technique. Some people describe aerobatics as an art like ballet. Some people say it's more like a sport like auto racing. Which one do you think is closer to the truth? <laughs> oh, man. Someone described it one of my aerobatics buddies described it as like being in a washing machine and holding 10 pound weights in each hand and also like standing on your head. I forget the metaphor, but it is, it's very intense. I think ballet is definitely part of it. Um, There is a beauty and grace to the lines and symmetry of competition flying, Um, but it's definitely a sport too. And it's competitive. And the fun thing about the competition aspect of of flying aerobatics is that it's also (laughs) a lot of camaraderie and so while we might kind of like duke it out and i have some very good and accomplished friends who are better than i am um well (laughs) we might sort of duke it out in the aerobatic box we're still friends at the end of the day and so you know the biggest thing is that sure it's a sport but it's just one more sort of rabbit hole to go down in aviation i couldn't love it more You got to fly with the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds, which instantly makes all of us jealous. (laughs) What was the most surprising part of that experience? I mean, you expect the speed, the noise, but what caught you by surprise? The F-16, sorry if there are any Viper drivers out there, is pretty easy to fly. Um, And the stick um, is very, it's a very fly-by-wire airplane. The stick is very like pressure sensitive. It doesn't really move a lot in your hand. Um, the cool part about um, being able to fly with the Thunderbirds is that they also understood that I'm a pilot and I fly aerobatics. So um, the pilot that I flew with, Jason Marscon, he was like, yeah, you want to fly? And I got to fly for like half an hour. I mean, it was like, how awesome is that to get F-16 stick time? Um, and so I did like sportsman level aerobatics. I did a loop. I did a half Cuban. I did a roll. Um, we pulled nine Gs. Um, but initially when I tried to do like a point roll, like stopping every 90 degrees, like a four point roll, um, you know, you're in the back and you can see the, the pilot's helmet 
very easily in front of you. I was kind of bobbling his head because in the decathlon, you have to put the stick all the way over to full deflection and then sort of take it out, center the stick. And so it's sort of two kinesthetic movements. If you're rolling to the left, you move the stick all the way over to the stop to the left, and then you're muscling the stick back over to the right and back to center. And in the F-16, it's not like that. You kind of just let go of the stick. And it just sort of flies straight. So I was bobbling Jason's head up in the front. And I was like, sorry, man. Like, I mean, to yank you around like that. Um, it was pretty cool. It was, I mean, I didn't start it, obviously. I didn't like, I did none of the procedures. I didn't do any of the radios. I didn't, you know, I don't know. I didn't know anything about the systems. I just flew it. Um, but it, it's perfect in that way because it's a, you know, it's a fighting machine and it's a weapons platform. And so you want it to be easy to fly. Um, so visibility was awesome. When I, you know, you look in the decathlon and most aerobatic airplanes that one can buy with money and not taxpayer dollars, um, you look toward the wing to try and get a reference for where you are against the horizon. And I looked for the wing as I was doing a loop and in the F-16 and the wing's way behind you. Like this thing is so huge. And (laughs) so I had like almost no reference. And so then when I'm doing this loop, I'm kind of rolling off to the left as we're vertical and um, because I'm trying to find the wing and it was pretty awesome. I mean, I sorry, sorry for the jealousy. A, a very, for a journalist, a very educational experience too, um, and totally taught me the the level of teamwork um, that goes into any one of those flights at the Air Force level. There's a lot of briefing. There's a lot of people involved. You cannot just like in the decathlon. I push the plane out of the hangar. I do a pre-flight. I strap my chute on and I get in. Um, in this, it's, it takes a lot of preparation, and there's a lot of people who go into just getting that airplane started. It's pretty was pretty amazing. What is the craziest aviation story you've ever reported on? And I, I have one nominee, but I'll let you answer first. Uh, <laughs> I I really like the story of the guy uh, who was the passenger in a caravan and his pilot. Um, had a medical emergency and passed out and he landed. Um, you know, at the time we said he didn't have any flying experience and he didn't, but he also owned the airplane. I mean, I think that <laughs> he had a little bit of knowledge and at least some Microsoft flight sim practice, right? Like kind of, I mean, sad for the the guy who uh, had the medical emergency, but like, and I just said this on air the other day as we were talking about something similar, like sort of a dream scenario or like not dream scenario, but fantasy scenario for a lot of pilots on board. Like, is there a pilot, is there a pilot on board? Like, <laughs> so you get to be the hero because you have your pilot's license. Um, and also, I mean, that one was just, and it was a good ending too. And you got to, ex- one got to explain like, you know, once the airplane's flying, it wants to fly. So he did a great job. Pretty good landing. Yeah, that's a great story. Absolutely. My my nominee was the one where the uh, passenger had a dog crammed in their backpack that got caught at the TSA checkpoint because oh, they yeah. thought they were going to carry their dog on and stick it in the overhead bin, I guess. That, actually, that keeps happening. There's been a cat. And I also report on security things a lot, too. And so, um, you know, the, in my portfolio is the TSA and and they will sort of occasionally send to me like, have you seen this? I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a... Um, we would call it a talker of a story. Like it's, you know, the news value of it is kind of low, but, um, it's good to remind people don't put pets in your carry on or check bags, like (laughs) as if we really need to say it, but apparently some people need the reminder. If one of our listeners has to go on national TV tomorrow for an interview, what is one piece of Uh, advice you would give them from somebody who spends a lot of time in front of the camera? 
You know, aviation and media are always kind of at odds, I feel like. And I think a lot of aviation people are rightfully suspicious about the media because it's a really technical topic and it's easy to screw up. Remember that reporters are just trying to learn. Um, And so treat them as if you're teaching them. Um, Try not to get too in the weeds on any one particular topic. Keep it simple and keep it straightforward. Um, And I think people get overly rehearsed. I find this a lot in interviews. People like try to be a little too soundbite machine-esque and, uh, you know, just like let it, let it flow. Like don't, don't stick to the points too much. Just talk to a reporter like you would any other human. And, you know, reporters are not to vilify you. Um, they're just out to educate the public. They're out to inform. Um, and so, you know, I hope, uh, that, that pilots and aviation can become a better resource um, and be less afraid. It, the jobs are actually kind of similar in a way. They're both pretty dynamic <laughs> and, and things are always changing. And so you have to remember a reporter jumping into a topic may not be an expert in that thing. And they're going to be on something else completely, a story that's completely different the next day. So have some patience and try and teach. Yeah. Great advice about being human too. I think that's overlooked. Yeah. Pete, our last question is always the same on this podcast. You have one final flight and we want to know what are you flying and where are you going? Oh, man. Um, it's a really good question. And you've I already think... done turns around a point on Kilimanjaro and pulled loops in the <laughs> F-16 with the Thunderbirds. So uh, no repeats, but those would be yeah, probably good ones. Yeah, <laughs> there's not a lot out there. I think, I, you know, I'd love to fly the SR-71. Um, I think that would be incredible. Like what a cool piece of technology, but I don't know. Damn, let's keep it simple. I'd like a stagger wing and I'd like to go to the Bahamas and, you know, like maybe a Howard, maybe some cool antique thing like that. But man, there's too many to list. This is a hard question. Maybe a starship. <laughs> there is absolutely nothing wrong with a stagger wing to the Bahamas. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> Pete, thanks, thanks for being John. on the podcast. <laughs> a, a thrill to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Pilot's Discretion, brought to you by Sporties, training and equipping pilots worldwide for over 60 years. For more episodes and today's show links, visit sporties.com slash podcast. I'm John Zimmerman. We'll see you next time on Pilot's Discretion. Discretion.